25th of March, 2006. I keep thinking about my grandparents and what they must have gone through in World War I and II. This is nothing compared to that. I have an end date. I know that I'll be home sometime in August. I have the ability to come back to a warm tent and call home to hear my mum's voice. I have the ability to check email and send a message instantly. I am so proud of all of the veterans that I know, but especially both of my grandfathers and grandmothers. I am in such good company and uniform. It truly is an honor to be wearing a uniform overseas. What I want to talk about is the importance of family and friends. I think of you often, especially when I see different or funny things. When I got back, there was a stack of mail. I'm not kidding, like over 25 envelopes. I've written back to about half of the people now and hope to get through the rest of the letters tomorrow. It means so much to me that so many people have taken the time to email, write, mail, newspapers, and letters. Thank you. Home sometimes feels very far away, especially when it is a Saturday night and we have deep-fried catfish at the mess because our mess is an American one and they eat some strange stuff. Your letters make me feel that much closer. Thank you. Nicola. I'm Shannon Busta, and you're listening to For Her Country, a podcast produced by the True Patriot Love Foundation and the Captain Nicola Goddard Fund. Over the course of this series, we'll explore lessons in leadership from inspirational female leaders from across the Canadian Armed Forces, all in honor of fallen Canadian military hero, Captain Nicola Goddard. The letter you just heard is an excerpt from one of the last letters Nicola sent home before being killed in action. We've decided to include her letters throughout this podcast to give our listeners a sense of what it's like to be on deployment. If you're interested in reading all of Nicola's letters, you can find them in the biography Canada's Daughter by Sally Goddard. And now I want to take this opportunity to thank RBC for generously supporting this podcast series as presenting sponsor. RBC has been an advocate of True Patriot Love since 2010 and has committed over $1 million in support of Canada's military members, veterans, and their families. Thank you, RBC. Our guest today is Sergeant Jerry Ann Davidson. Jerry grew up in Penticton, BC, and joined the military as an armored crewman the day before the September 11th attacks on the World Trade Center. Jerry has completed multiple deployments, her first in 2003 when she deployed to Bosnia as a coyote driver. Her next deployment took place in 2006 when she deployed to Afghanistan on the first deployment of tanks as a Leopard C2 tank gunner. And always pushing herself to new limits, Jerry competes in ex-mountain man races. In 2011, she attempted the Canadian Death Race, a 125-kilometer foot race through the Canadian Rocky Mountains. It took her four attempts before she completed it, but she finally did in 2014. And in 2018, she deployed to Jordan in order to mentor and train Jordan's first troop of female recruits. Jerry received the CJOC Commandeer's Accommodation for her work there. She currently resides in Edmonton with her two dogs. Jerry, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's so great to have you here. I'd like to start off our conversation as I often do, and that's by asking how you found your way into a career in the military. I was lucky enough that just down the street, because I grew up in the Okanagan, was the Armored Dragoon Reserve Unit. I think that had a lot of influence, and I just wanted to be working outside, traveling abroad. I wanted to live an adventurous lifestyle, so it fit within that. (laughs) 
And how old were you when you decided that this was what you wanted to do with your life? I was about 16 years old. Wow. So you were still in high school and you knew the army was for you. Yes. And so how did you end up going about this? Did you just walk into a recruiting office? Well, I wanted to start with reserve because something internally said that I wanted to experience life outside of the military first and then get a taste of it and then join. But the recruiting process took so long that I ended up just saying, okay, I'm just, I'm just going to go plunge right in then. <laughs> and you mentioned it took a while. How old were you when you actually did plunge right in? I, I was actually about uh, 19. I mean, that's still incredibly young. When I think back to what I was like at 19, I certainly wasn't thinking about making such a commitment. Uh, so can you tell me a bit about how that uh, initial process went for you? Was it what you expected? I started the military the day before 9-11. So let's just say it's been interesting. Yeah, it was very different. It was a different time than it is now. Bosnia was happening, uh, everything with 9-11. Uh, so it was a lot of a very fast pace and it was hard to really catch your breath with anything. It was the adventure that I was looking for. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like an understatement. Um, and for our listeners who may not be familiar, can you give us a quick rundown of what the Canadian presence was in Bosnia? Why were we there? What were we doing? It was mainly presence patrols when I was there, because I can only really speak of what my experiences were. Our main goal was to, to try and maintain the peace between the Serbs and the Muslims. So by the time I had gotten there, it was a lot more peaceful and the war was over because it was uh, over in 97. So most of our role there was just doing presence patrols and just letting us know that the military is here, so please keep the peace kind of thing. So you must have been pretty young at this time. Can you give us a sense of what that experience was like for you? What are some of the lessons you learned? How did you personally mature and develop uh, while you were over there? To be honest, I was, I was 19. I just actually lost my mother. That's awful. I'm so sorry. No, uh, it's okay. It was a long time ago. I also lost my mother around that age, and it's just a terrible experience. Yes, it was hard. So I actually dealt with a lot of emotions while I was there, just dealing with my emotional maturity and dealing with everything with my mom and also putting my job first. In a lot of ways with work, you, you put your emotions second and you put the job first. So that was just my first experience with that. And of course, the culture shock, because I was 19, and I never really experienced anything like that before. <laughs> Can you take us there and give us a sense of what was behind the culture shock for you? Just being in a war-torn country, you've seen evidence everywhere. You go to some areas of Bosnia, and it's a village with everything blown up. You can't even see how anyone's living there. And then you could hear generators going, and people, like, People are just making it work. A lot of people went to the hills and just people living in tents in the forest years after the war just puts a different perspective on things. It was definitely eye-opening. If joining the military didn't speed up your maturity process, I'm sure Bosnia must have. I find them pretty adaptable. So I didn't find that one as the quick maturity as in like, then actually going to war because that's when reality hits. <laughs> and that was a few years later, right? 2006 and 2008 that I was there in Afghanistan. Okay. 
what were those experiences like for you? What were those deployments like for you? I was a gunner for both tours. It was a good experience in the sense of I was actually doing my job. I was doing what I was trained to do. And everyone says that they would be, you know, they would always have their comrades back, but you're really put to the test there in so many ways and able to be tested. I found, I, I appreciated that experience. Anyone could say whatever they want actions speak louder than words. So I was able to put the actions into motion. And it was definitely like a much bigger culture shock than Bosnia. You just had to be on guard all the time. You couldn't get complacent. Very different anyways. And you did two stints in Afghanistan back to back? Well, I call it back to back just because uh, every we all went through rotations, starting with B squadron. And then the next B squadron rotation, I, I was on that. So my first one being during Aunt Medusa in 2006 and the last one deploying in March and then getting back in October in 2008. And what was your state of mind when you were going back a second time? You've already mentioned that you loved being there the first time because it felt right to be doing your job. Were you still in that state of mind on, on your second deployment? I immediately, as soon as I got off my leave, I immediately started training. So I was getting ready to go out the door as soon as, pretty much as soon as I got back. I was actually very excited because I just wanted to be with my comrades. I wanted to go back and contribute. I'm Catherine Rusk. Captain Nicola Goddard was my sister, and I'd like to make a request. Military service can bring great challenges and sacrifices. Women in particular can face unique issues. Help True Patriot Love and the Captain Nicola Goddard Fund support Canada servicewomen, veteran women, and their families. True Patriot Love Foundation is a national organization that supports the military and veteran community by funding critical programs across the country. Please consider donating today towards their mission at tplgoddardfund.com. No donation is too small. On behalf of my family and the Captain Nicola Goddard Fund, we thank you for your support. And then when you did come back, it was it was 10 years before you were redeployed again, at which time you went to Jordan. Can you tell us a bit about what you were doing there? In Jordan, I was part of Roto Zero. So it's the first team out there to help train the female engagement team for the quick reaction force. And I had to train them to bring up their standard. And they were all fresh out of basic. They could barely do a squat. <laughs> And so a lot of it had to be uh, thinking creative, adapting to what they needed. And yeah, so it was very different. It was, it was amazing though. What were some of the challenges that you faced when you were going through this training process with these women? Well, in the army, we're, we do everything as a drill. So it's an automatic reaction. So we do everything with teaching. We all do it the same. It's all part of our leadership qualification going over there they do things very differently. So you really had to adapt because typically we do a student instructor ratio is one to four. In Jordan, it was one to 40. That is a big difference. Yes, big difference. And with the language barriers as well, a lot of the first month or so was all about getting to know the girls and what they needed just to make sure that we could teach in a way that was drawing their attention. What were some of the changes that you made to your process to achieve that? 
in a lot of ways, it was taking a softer approach. A lot of things in the military can be black and white. So you had to add some gray in there. One of my favorite moments and kind of a turning point was one of the girls had stuff going on at home and I was getting them to, you know, run through how to do a patrol. And she just looked like she was not there. Like she just mentally was somewhere else. And so I pulled her up and I asked what was wrong. She started crying. So I grabbed one of her friends. I was like, promise the guy, uh, five minutes, do whatever you got to do. And the sergeants there couldn't understand it. They're like, no, she's got to do this. No, promise the guy, give, give her time. And then she came back, she was paying attention. She just needed a moment. And giving them those little moments to deal with their own stuff uh, helped build more of a bond to help accomplish what needed to be accomplished. I find this so fascinating. I imagine it must have been pretty challenging to adapt a leadership style that has been ingrained into you that is, as you mentioned, based on drills, so your reactions become automatic, and moving from that more regimented style to something a bit more free-flowing and flexible. How did you personally go about transitioning to this new type of leadership style? I would say a lot of it was just getting to know them and listening to them. I love the Jordan culture. They are very open, um, loving culture. And I just would regularly just talk with them. After the workday, I would sit with my language assistant and I would try and get to know them. So once you get to know them, like, and I would ask, you know, like, like a lot of things that we do in the military is PowerPoint. And eventually they grew to tell us like, we do not like PowerPoint. <laughs> I was like, all right. So as little PowerPoint as possible. And then I would do it all hands-on. And over time they learn if they communicate what they need, I will try and adapt to that. And then they would just be more open. Then it just slowly evolved. It sounds like it must've been an incredibly rewarding process for you. Every day every day like there was always frustrating moments culture differences will always have its frustration just to see you know day by day they didn't hate doing physical training and they're like look look sergeant juju sergeant jerry and then and they would be doing push-ups and stuff like that so it was just seeing that slow evolution and by the time i left it's not like i um it's not like we conquered the world in six months, but just to watch them do take down, like we started teaching them self-defense and they understood why I taught them the burpee because <laughs> then it transitioned to breakfalls and then it transitioned to army stuff, like doing section attacks and then every watching them understand why I was doing the things that I was doing and then them using it. Oh, it's so awesome to see. Every day they were making me smile. And every day you could see a little bit. There was always setbacks, but then the next day was a new day and you would see something else that was like, yes. <laughs> it just sounds like it must have been amazing. It really was. I got to know the girls quite well and I definitely appreciate that experience. And they taught me some things too. They live in the moment it seems all the time. If they have even the smallest moment to smile, to enjoy life in any way possible, they take it. That is something that most people in the military are not very good at because we're always thinking about the next thing and the next thing, not what's going on in that moment. So I definitely appreciated that mindset. I know I personally could benefit from maintaining that mindset a bit more. Um, I'd love to move on now to discuss 
how you keep yourself busy when you're not focusing on work. I think you have some pretty interesting hobbies. I am very, very lucky to be part of an amazing running community. And the military actually started me in this direction because I had an opportunity to run solo for the Canadian Death Race, which is a 125 kilometer in the mountains race. Okay, just to pause you there, it's 125 kilometers in the mountains and you do this all by yourself? It's broken down legs, but yes, I went for the full 125K. And how long does it take you to complete a race like this, assuming you are able to complete it? Well, they give you 24 hours, and I was under 24 hours. (laughs) That is incredible. As somebody who has trained for a few half marathons, I am absolutely blown away that you could run for 24 hours. How on earth did you find your way into the world of ultra running? I am very much a go big or go home personality. I competed in a race called Mountain Man, which is you're you're running with the rucksack, you're por- doing the portage and you're canoeing. That was my stepping stone. I wanted to reach for something bigger, but not just a little bit. <laughs> because that's not how I do things. And I had heard about this race and I just, I wanted to see what I was capable of. I I went for it and it took me a while. I didn't get it right off the hop. It took me four tries, but uh, eventually I got it. (laughs) What does training look like in the ultra running world? How do you find time to prepare for these races? It takes a lot of dedication. Every, every day, every run has a purpose and everything has to be planned out. Your meals have to be planned out. For example, when I was competing, I was in Wainwright. So I would do my long run. So I would do a 50 kilometer training run, come home, cook up a bunch of food, and then I would have a barbecue because the next day was my rest day. <laughs> so I could afford to have a barbecue. I just had to suffer through the tiredness of my 50K run. (laughs) 50K training runs, Jerry? Blowing my mind here. It's all about being in the mountains because that those 50k training runs, it, it was a lot of mental training because they were not enjoyable. <laughs> it's all about being in the mountains. In the mountains, it's just, it doesn't feel like 50k. And when you're with like such amazing people that are reaching for even more than you are, and you're just like blown away by their abilities, it just like influences you and makes you more, more motivated and just want to be part of that. You mentioned earlier that you're a go big or go home kind of person. Do you have any advice for our listeners who might be in the habit of setting goals for themselves, but perhaps could be more ambitious with those goals? I would say don't reach for what you think you can uh, accomplish. Reach for bigger and don't be afraid of failure because you never know what you're capable of. And if you don't reach for it, you're never going to know. So don't settle for less. That's just great advice. I think we could all benefit from maybe being a bit more ambitious with our goal setting. And I'm curious to know if there's any interplay between these two huge elements of your life, your career in the military on one side and your ultra running on the other, if they benefit each other in some way. Well, being fit in your day-to-day life, for one, it sets the example to the truth. Uh, Being in an armored unit, fitness training is not always the highest of priority. So when you're killing yourself every day in your own time, it influences others, but it also puts you in a position where you can honestly expect a little bit more. I won't expect anything that I'm not able to do. It is awesome to try and introduce young troops to this kind of lifestyle because in a lot of ways the military can involve a lot of alcohol 
<laughs> so when you introduce young troops that are 19 to these crazy races and, and this kind of lifestyle, I hope to think at least that it influences them for a healthy fit lifestyle. I mean, it clearly sounds like you love what you do and this choice that you made at 16 has really worked out for you. But I still need to ask, what specifically is it about the military that's kept you in it for so long? Every month can be different. So much of it is the same, but your life is different in that month. And every year is different. You never know what's going to be thrown your way. Look at COVID-19, you know? So that hugely keeps me in because if I wasn't being challenged in any form, then it would get, it would get quite boring to me. So being given the different experiences, um, like deployments and just even right now we're on immediate response uh, in case something happens. So then I'm put in a position where I may be able to help someone in Canada. And I I like that aspect behind it. I I like constant changes and the constant room for development and, and all that kind of stuff. Well, thank you so much for doing what you do, Jerry, and for sharing your story with us today. Yeah, you bet. And on our next episode of For Her Country, we speak with the recent recipient of the Captain Nicola Goddard Award, Sergeant Leslie Blair of the Royal Canadian Air Force. The Captain Nicola Goddard Award recognizes young Canadian innovators and trailblazers who have made a significant contribution to Canadian security and defense. Leslie is an aircraft technician who dedicates a large portion of her time to philanthropic efforts, including her charity, Santa for Veterans. We're supposed to take care of our veterans, and as military members, you know, when I retire, I want somebody to make sure I'm okay too. So it, it doesn't sit well with me that somebody maybe is alone or not doing well, especially at Christmas time kind of thing. So. Christmas for me is about Santa for veterans. Like, don't even bother sending me a gift, mom. Like, just help me do this Santa for veterans stuff. For Her Country is hosted by me, Shannon Busta. It is written and produced by me and Katrina Bolak. Our music is by Whiskey Wolf and Oceanic Piano. A special thank you to Catherine Rusk and the Goddard family and the team at True Patriot Love for their support throughout this project. And thank you to our series sponsor, RBC. The letter shared in this episode is from the biography Canada's Daughter, written by Sally Goddard. You can find it on Amazon. It was read by Anna Maximew. This project was produced with the True Patriot Love Foundation and the Captain Nicola Goddard Fund. True Patriot Love is Canada's leading organization that supports military members and their families. It administers the Captain Nicola Goddard Fund, which was started by the Goddard family to support women in the military in honor of Nicola. To learn more about this podcast and the great work of this organization, please visit forhercountry.ca and consider donating if you can. And if you enjoy this podcast, please rate and review it wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening. See you next time.